So you told me now we now need the constitutional obligation, the constitutional date of the prosecution for moving because that the duty of that particular responsibility. Welcome to the Faith and Proper Podcast by Digilaw, your host, Kiyukemi Obi, and co-host, Taiwo Ogunleye. Hello, and you're welcome to today's episode of the Faith and Proper Podcast. My name is Kiyukemi Obi, and I'm your host. And today, we are going to be discussing trial preparation and evidence with Taiwo Ogunleye. Hi, Taiwo. How are you doing? I'm fine. Good morning. Okay. So, um... We're just going to dive right into it. Um, we're just going to start. So, can you tell us what is burden of proof in trial preparation? Alright. Um, burden of proof generally or ordinarily refers to the obligation or duty of convincing the court. In general terms, it means obligation of convincing the court or the duty of the party to convince the court to give or accept the act. That's in general terms. But then when it comes to criminal litigation, it will refer to the duty of the prosecution to convince the court that the defendant and nobody else has committed the offense in which the defendant is accused. That's for criminal litigation. But ordinarily, ordinarily, not just for law, it will mean the duty of the of convincing the court of the fact. Okay. And uh, there can be there can be two there can be two types of burden of proof that the legal burden and the evidential burden. Okay. All right. So you said that there are two legs, or what I call it, two uh, types of um, burden of proof. Um. So let's break it down. What is um? Let's start with legal burden of proof. Of proof. What is that? All right. Duty of duty of the prosecution. To convince the court of the use of the defendant. You know, section um, 36 of section 5 of the Constitution of the Soldier of the Person, the United States, provides that um, a person who is accused of committing an offense is presumed to be innocent until otherwise proven guilty by a competent court of law. So, you mm-hmm. now, we now need the constitutional obligation, the constitutional duty of the prosecution to convince the court that the duty of that particular offense with which he is charged. So, if, for instance, uh, Mr. Mr. Johnson is taken before the court on accusation of um, angry, the legal body now will be the duty of the prosecution. To convince the court that truly Mr. Johnson is guilty of angry. Hmm. Okay, so um, then let's then move to the next, which is an evidential burden. Um, what's that all about? Okay. Um, why legal burden is constitutional? It is seized on uh, the prosecution to establish a case. So, where the prosecution is not able to establish a case, we can say that. He has not decided the legal burden on him. But when we speak of um, evidential burden, evidential burden is not placed on any particular party. So, the 
metabolism is only the duty to convince the court upon the existence of a fact. So, when somebody claims or when a party claims that a fact exists, then the metabolism is the duty to convince the court of such fact. So, for instance, something that is arranged before the court and it has not been claimed that it was not at the place where the crime was committed at the time it was committed. Now, he is making the claim of being somewhere else. So the evidential body now will now be his duty to convince the court that he was not at that particular place at the material time. Mm. So unlike legal body, which is seized on the prosecution, evidential body is not seized, it's seized from one party to another. So where Mr. Johnson now is able to convince the court that, oh, you said this offense took place in Oshogi. At that time, I was not even in Lagos State, I was in Oshobo. Now, once he convinces the court, he is said to have discharged the evidential body. So, now it's now the duty of the prosecutor now to discharge the next evidential body by saying, No, you were not in Oshobo, you were at this particular place. So, and keep sitting and sitting. So, that's the evidential body, unlike the legal body, which is not in the state for one party to another. Okay, okay, now, so let's talk about, um, more about the standard of proof. How does that relate to legal wording? Alright, first we should understand what it is before we speak of how it relates to legal wording. Now, standard of proof refers to the degree of proof required by law. That is the extent to which a case or the extent to which a fact must be proved. Alright, so we said there is um there is burden of proof, of course there's responsibility to convince the court. But um standard of proof now means how well or what degree should you convince the court. So it's not just about convincing the court, but to what degree should you um convince the court. That is what it um is ordinarily what ordinarily means. So for instance, um if you take a look at the case of um Abdullah and the state. The court said that the standard of proof is the extent to which burden of proof must be discharged before the prosecution can be said to have proved the guilt of the defendant. So, okay, we say there is a legal burden upon the prosecution to show that the defendant has committed the offense. So, to what extent now is this supposed to prove? To what extent is it supposed to prove? Is it just to come to court and somebody says, yes, I saw him committing the offense, or it just comes and says, well, um, he was the only person that was around in the house when the money got lost. Now, to what extent does he have to do it? That is what is meant by, um, by the, by standard. And so, how does it relate, how does it relate to legal body? Now, legal body is what requires standard of proof. In, 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 in simpler terms, there will be no need for standard of proof if there was no legal body in the first place. So, why do legal body be saying somebody must prove? The standard is now saying to what extent is this person required to prove. So there's an obligation to prove the case, which is one, and then there is a degree to which that case must be proved. So by law, the law provides that the standard of proof in criminal trial is proved beyond reasonable doubt. That is section 135 of the evidence Act 2011. It says in any matter that involves an allegation of crime, the person asserting the crime was proved beyond ordinary doubt. So, for the legal body now, you don't just prove, you prove to the satisfaction of everybody. 
So that means there should be no reasonable doubt after the establishment of the constitution states. So everybody in court, including both the laymen and the learned people in court, should be able to use it in the constitution states to say truly this constitution has been able to show that the defendant or the accused person actually carried out the crime. Now we're done that so how does this how does standard of proof relate to evidential body? Is it the same thing? Yeah, as I as I said earlier, I said standard of proof um, standard of proof exists because there is a legal burden. So it means when we are not discussing when we are not discussing legal burden now, we might not have to talk about standard of proof. For evidential burden, all you need to do is just to convince the court that the particular facts in the issue exist. So we don't really talk of um Standard of proof when we discuss evidential body. So, standard of proof is a discussion solely in the realm of legal body. Okay. Alright, so let's talk about the um, competence and com- the comparability of witness. Can you break that down? Alright, um, the two things. Um, the first one, competence. Competence means the fitness or the qualification of the person to testify before a court. It means how fit or how qualified is the person to testify before, before the court. But when we speak of compatibility uh, now, it means fine, this person will agree or understand that the person is fit and qualified to testify. But can that person be brought to court by legal means despite their involuntariness? So it is possible that, of course, the law allows the person to testify, the person is qualified, the person is fit. The person understands the question to be asked and is able to give reasonable or rational answers. But then there remains the question of if this person refuses to come to court willingly to testify, can you use any force of law to ensure that the person comes to court? So, compatibility now deals with the obligation to bring the person to court despite their willingness to attend court. For instance, when you say that a robbery somewhere, and there are people who could give testimony concerning the robbery. In Nigeria, you discover that it is very difficult to get members of the public to testify. They tell you, if I go to court, uh, what is the person say I am guilty? Now, so there is a misunderstanding of the responsibility of the witness. So people are afraid to go to court. So in that situation where a person does not want to go to court, and they have tangible testimony, Compatibility means can you use the law to force them to go to court? Okay, alright. So let, let's let's get down to the more interesting part now. What are the rules governing um, the child witness? The first thing is that when we speak of um, a child, it means we are first concerned with the age of that person. Alright, so where a where a person is a child. The first question is, does, does the law disqualify a child from giving evidence? So, and I think the answer to the answer to that question now is found in section 175 of section 1 of the evidence act 2011. And that section is to the fact that every person is qualified to give evidence before the court, except because they believe that that person, as a result of old age, tender age, Integrity of the mind or integrity of the body will prevent the person from understanding the questions posed to them 
and prevent them from giving rational answers. So it means a person that is qualified to testify before the court must be somebody that the court does not think will not understand questions and give rational answers. So once a person in the opinion of the court is able to understand the questions given to them or push to them, and then the court believes that he can give rational answer, such a person is qualified to give testimony. So irrespective of the person's age, whether the person is less than seven, less than fourteen or not, as long as the court is of the opinion that that the person or that the child can understand the duty of speaking to one, can give rational answers to questions, then the person is qualified. So that means that a child, irrespective of the person's age, is qualified to give testimony before a court of law. Unless the court believes they cannot understand the person to give them rational answers. So that is, that is the first ground. Now, when you come to section 209, that section 209, section 1 of the evidence at 211, you notice where a person has not attained the age of 14. That type of person cannot be sworn on oath and cannot make affirmation. So it means, although a child is qualified to be testimony in court, but when the person gets to court, they are still concerned about the person's age. So when the child is less than 14, the child will not be sworn on oath, and neither will the child be affirmed. So it means we will say, uh, I hereby, I hereby caution you that if you, if you can like the voice, but all of those formalities we have for adverse witnesses shall not apply to the child. Now, but the, the, the implication of this now, the implication of this is where a person is not sworn as a result of age, that person now, even though they understand the consequence of speaking truth, the law is still to defend that that testimony will be prohibited. And don't forget, we, we, we are discussing criminal trials here. Somebody, if found guilty, is to be sentenced. So imagine that the only testimony available to convict the person is the testimony of a child, and the child has not been sworn on oath. The position of the law is that when that child has testified before the court, but before the court can convict, that can convict the defendant on such testimony, the testimony needs to be corroborated either by another person or by the document. That is true. Now, the third part now is where the child is 14 years already. So, where a child is 14, by the provision of section 209 of section 2 of the next act, that, that, that type of child can give sworn testimony. So that means the, person, the child can be sworn on oath. And in that situation, his testimony would not require corroboration. So that means it can be the testimony available, and the only witness available, and the testimony is sufficient to convict, to convict the defendant in that situation. So in some, a child by the provision of section 175 of the evidence act is qualified or is competent to testify before the court. But where the child is less than 14, he will not be sworn on oath, and he will not be made to go into affirmation. In that case, the testimony will require corroboration. But when the child is already 14 and happy, it shall be allowed to be sworn on those, and the testimony shall not require corroboration. So okay. on whether a child, on whether a child can be, uh, on whether a child is a compelling witness now, 
the God is silent on that, so the God does not say that the child cannot be compelled. So since the God does not say the child cannot be compelled now, it means that the child can actually be compelled to testify before the court. Okay. So is it possible for an accused person to be a witness and how does that play out? Well, as an accused person is it is is competent is a competent witness definitely for the defense. You 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 cannot use an accused person now as a competent mm-hmm. as witness for the for the prosecution. For instance, let's say Mr. Daniel Boko is is the defendant or the accused person, and then you want to call him for the prosecution, automatically the prosecution has is wasting time because definitely it's not an accused person who's going to face for the prosecution in favor of himself. So, but when we talk about the defense, of course, the accused person is a competent witness for the defense as, as far as the promotion of the fight of the evidence act is concerned. But the problem is, it cannot be a compelling witness. So, it means, if a, by the commission of section 1 of the evidence act, an accused person can only be a witness where he chooses to be a witness. So, that means, if I have a taken to court as, 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 as an accused person, and then it gets to the point that okay, the, my my lawyers want to call my witnesses for me. And I decide to say I don't want to be a witness, all other people are witnesses. My lawyer cannot say, ah, no, you are the most important witness in this case. I will I will ask the court to issue a subpoena for you. I will subpoena you to court. It is not possible because I cannot be compelled to come to court. And the prosecution too cannot say, eh, because you don't want to court examine you. That is why I don't want to testify. We ask the court to force you to testify. It is not allowed. So, a, 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 an accused person cannot be compelled as a witness, but is a competent witness for the defense. Okay. What about co-accused? Does the same rules apply? Well, a co-accused is not a competent witness for the prosecution, too. As a matter of fact, in, 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 in criminal trial, you can't say, okay, um, because Two people are accused, and one person has said that he's guilty, then because he has said he's guilty, we will then also implicate another accused person. It's not a competent witness for the prosecution. But what can be done in that regard is when the prosecution believes that a co accused is, is to be used as witness for the prosecution, then there are a lot of options available for the prosecution. One, they can decide to withdraw the charge against him. You know? Once you withdraw the charge against the person, automatically it's no longer co-accused. Or the attorney general can decide that they can want to enter a new position for this person. And at that instant, it's no longer a co-accused. So instead of being a co-accused now, converted to a witness. Alright, um, let me give let me give you this. This the open state, open state and uh here and I think twenty others. I represented six defendants. Now there were 21, there were 21 of defendants, as a matter of fact. But, having examined the facts of the case, the attorney of the state discovered that many of these defendants were eventually found guilty. In fact, before the, before the court, before the matter would get to the end, supposing that these people after the case of prosecution, we enter a no case submission, and then eventually the, 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 the AD now decided to withdraw charges against, against about 18 of the defendants. 18 of them. So the 18 of them now, the, the, the state decided, okay, since you are co-accused, we want to withdraw the charge against you so that you can testify on the state's behalf. So it was only after 
the God and the state of evil will use such agents that it will be used to testify for the state. So if you will be a still accused person, you will not have been qualified to be witnesses for prosecution. So co accused, co accused persons are not competent witnesses for the prosecution. But then they are competent witnesses for themselves. Mm, okay. So um what about the person of concerned mind? I know this is a bit dicey, but are they can they be witnesses too? Well, um if the person is said to be of unsound mind, then we have to go back to the provisions of session one seven, the size of session one again. Right? I mean of the evidence act now. So what what that uh, what that provision says is a person is a competent witness if they can understand the question put to them and give rational answer. In fact, the most specific thing that I teach, I think the law says a person, all persons are competent witness unless in the opinion of the court. So naturally, even without any opinion of the court, they are qualified. But when the court now opines that they, they cannot understand the questions put to them and offer reasonable answers, that is when they become disqualified. So the person will now believe it's possible to have somebody of a sound mind who will now understand questions put to them and still offer rational answers. So that would be that would be that would be that would be our concern. Can they understand the questions put to them and offer reasonable answers or rational answers? So the problem now is not the fact that they are concerned mind. The problem will now be can they understand the questions put to them? So if in the opinion of the court, a person who is claimed to be of a sound mind can understand the questions put to them and give an answer. Then they are competent witnesses. Mm. So if you claim that somebody is unsound, and or if you think by 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 reason of insanity of the mind, the person cannot understand the question. Where they form the court for the court to form its opinion about that person. So where the opinion of the court is that this person cannot understand the question, then the person will be disqualified from testifying before the court. But if the court believes that this person can testify, this person can understand the question, this person can give rational answer. Of course, there is no problem. And what we know there are people who are of unsound mind that they have their moment of lucidity. Yeah. So if <laughs> if the point where that person is attending before the court and then one person is saying, one party is saying, this person is of unsound mind, if that is the time of that person's lucidity, you know, there is no question they will ask the person as a test that the person will not be able to answer clearly. So that even if at that point of the test for lucidity, the person passes the test, and by the time the examination of the of the event, where at the point where the person was being tested, you already passed the test. So the testimony will be accepted by God. Okay, my next question is going to be: Can a person who is dumb be a witness in a criminal um, trial, like someone who can't speak? Well, section one seventy six of section two of the Evidence Act. Answer the question, answer that question categorically. The section provides that a dumb person is a competent witness. It is a competent witness. And then that section also provides for how that dumb person will answer questions. So it says it may give his testimony by writing or by silence. But if a dumb person is going to give his testimony in writing, don't forget that in criminal trial there is one thing that's what only exists in civil trial. So if a dumb person is going to give his testimony by writing, it will mean that it was done in open court. So that means once a person is put to him, instead of speaking, 
you will put it down in writing and show it to the court. Mm-hmm. So it means the difference will now be that while somebody who is not dumb will open his mouth and speak, the person who is dumb, as each person is asked, will be given the paper on which he will answer and provide and, and show to the court immediately. In a situation where such answers are written, it is deemed to be other testimony and not written testimony. Why is it other testimony? Because it is written in open court in response to each specific answer and this specific question value. So the answer is a young person is a competent witness as far as the one of the six of the evidence has been concerned. Okay, alright. So another interesting question. Can a married person be a witness in a criminal trial that involves their spouse as accused? No. Now, in the eyes of the law, a married person mm-hmm. is, 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 I mean, married, married people are not seen as, as two. In the eyes oh. of the law, married people are seen as one. Interesting. I think it's, I think it's from the beginning, Dr. Wonder, and put us on the IOB. I'm guessing. So the question is, the question is, you know, I said earlier that by the condition of Section 180 of the Evidence Act, that an accused person is not a competent witness for the prosecution. Mm-hmm. So if an accused person is not a competent witness for the prosecution, and you want to use the accused person's house as a witness, it's like you give the accused person as a witness, which is not allowed. So that means the spouse will not be the competent witness for the prosecution. But then, a very important question we, we have to answer is what does this mean to be married? You know, we, we, we practice a legal system that is similar to that of the UK. This is not the law of the UK, that is um, similar to that of England. Mm-hmm. And in England, when is a person said to be married? The person is said to be married when the married under the act. Okay. So, if, if your marriage is not married under the married act, then you cannot be said to be married. So, when Mr. A sees Mr. B on his street, I mean, Mr. A sees Ms. B on his street, and impregnates Ms. B, and then Ms. B marries as well, since you are now playing that, you cannot take that photo and see that you shall have to be your husband out. And then we move into Mr. A's house. Can we see their marriage? Can we see their marriage? Now, it is not, it, it is not within my discussion, but this is just something to think about. Can we see their marriage? Compared to when they go to court and they are married because they have their marriage activity. Or, even compared to a situation where there is a customary marriage, where one man, man has to speak to woman, bright price. See, that will concern with their marriage on that customary law. In the other instance, when they go to court, we can say they are married under, um, under English law. When the marriage in the church, we can say they are married under English law. When the law where no form of marriage life was performed at all, the law does not recognize man and woman as spouses or as husband and wife. So in that situation, one person might be able to testify against the other. Since in the eyes of the law, they are not married, they are just quality. So the law applies to spouses, not to Hmm. Okay. All right. So now, um, in, in episode thirty-three, yeah, um, although that was in the litigation, our co-host is very um told us about president, vice president, governor, deputy governors, about how they are competent for not compelable witnesses, for not compelable witnesses. Now, do, does the same rule apply for um, criminal trials? And is there anything peculiar well, with respect to criminal matters? Well, the 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 evidence act now. The evidence act 
does not distinguish between criminal trials and civil trials. As long as the trial is before the court of law, then the evidence has applied. Now, so where the evidence has applied, when we read it as it is, it is only on the issue of standard of proof or burden of proof that and they talk of difference between criminal and civil trials. But in this situation, the, the law is clear. Section 308, Section 308 of Section 1 of the Constitution provides that members of the executive, that is, heads of executive, cannot be compelled to give testimony. So, a governor, a deputy governor, a chairman, the president, a vice president, they cannot be compelled to testify in court. This is because the law says these things as distraction. You cannot continue to compare them to appear before different courts. And at the end of the day, you prevent them from carrying out their statutory responsibility. As a matter of fact, you cannot even you cannot even institute actions against them that night. So it is believed that as long as they are heads of the deputy, whether the trial is civil or the trial is criminal, they cannot be compelled as witnesses. However, when they decide that I want to give witness to them and I want to them, convince them, and then they agree to come to court to testify on your behalf, then they are competent witnesses, there is no problem. But when they say they do not want to come to court to testify, you cannot subpoena them or you cannot secure their presence by using any lawful means. So, whether that is that or civil, they are not competent I guess we say we apply to them as earlier that. Um, them or your members of your family, are they, they are competent but not comparable, right? Of course, of course, yes, 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 that's right. And they are members of staff, diplomats, members of their families, and members of staff. They are not, mm. I mean, they are not comparable. Okay. Oh, oh, what about a judge? Well, a judge is a competent witness, but it's not also comparable witness. As mm. long as the facts which on which he is coming to testify came into his knowledge while carrying out his lawful responsibility. So, what am I trying to say? You know, somebody is a judge, but that doesn't stop him from being human, or that doesn't, that doesn't stop him from being an agent in the testing. So, there is a difference between being compelled as a judge and being compelled as an individual. Okay. If you are compelling me because of the matter that came into his knowledge while sitting as a judge or while acting as a judge, it cannot be compelled. Whether the, the, the rule might be different where he's being compelled as an individual and not as a judge. That means what you are what you are compelling him for has nothing to do with his official responsibility. Mm-hmm. So but as a judge, whatever knowledge or whatever information comes into his knowledge while acting as a judge, he cannot be compelled on such matter. But if he chooses to come to court, of course he's a competent Okay, so what about um, legal practitioners? Are they comparable witnesses? Um, well, they are not comparable witnesses on issues that come into their knowledge while acting as legal practitioners to someone or the client. And we take a look at um, section 192, subsection 1. Any, any communication between the lawyer and between the legal practitioner and the client, they are said to be privileged communication. So on such privileged communication now, a lawyer cannot be compelled to testify. Mm. Okay. The last category I'm going to ask about is um, well, public officers. Does the same rule apply? Are they competent or compelling? Well, um, they are competent and not compelling. I mean, they are competent, but not compelling. 
Okay. And not comparable on certain situations, I mean, certain issues. Now, individuals for which they are to be compelled has to do with issues of public security or issues that involve in the execution of the matter or how they got a document or how they got a piece of evidence, then they cannot be compelled on such issues. In fact, even when you come to court willingly and they are being questioned on issues of public security, issues that have to do with how they carry out investigation, how they get documents. Even when they are in court as voluntary witnesses, they are still not bound to answer those questions in, in open court. If at all they will answer those questions, those questions will not be in open court because they are considered to be questions of public importance. And giving answers in public may cause a lot of hard work to the country or may jeopardize the course of the investigation in future cases. Ooh, okay. So let's switch base to like um admissibility of documentary evidence. How can documentary evidence be improved? Um, okay. Um by the provision of obsession eighty five of the evidence act, the content of the documentary evidence can be proved by primary or secondary evidence. So when I say primary evidence, primary evidence means the documents themselves tender to the court for inspection. So that is the definition given by section one, this is section one of the evidence act. So what does that mean? If I make the claim to the court that Mr. A goes married to Ms. B, they are both married under the act. Now there is a document to show or to certify that marriage, and that is the marriage certificate issued by the marriage registry. Now I can prove the content of that certificate by simply tendering the certificate to court to say, okay, here is the document, you can inspect the document. For instance, um, last last Thursday, if I'm not mistaken, last Thursday I was involved with the boss and that, and then the, the petitioner whom I resented claimed that um, the, the, the marriage is blessed with two children, and that the two children belong to the defendant, that is the husband, about to be divorced. Then, the only way we could prove that the children belong, I mean, we, to, to, to the man, or to claim that, okay, he gave them to them, and there is a marriage, and there is a death certificate carrying the man's name as the, the children's son name. So, what we did was to tender the death certificate themselves to the judge for inspection. That's exactly what it means to by. Primary evidence, ending documents to the court. So, the second way of proving the content of a documentary evidence is by secondary evidence. And that, according to section 87 now of the Evidence Act, it means you are not tendering the original documents now, but you are tendering documents or copies made from the original, such as photocopying, certified copy, whatever. But you are not tendering the original of the document. So, you can tender a photocopy, you can tender. It's not copying that you can tell anything, but it is not the original, that is secondary evidence. And generally, by the provision of section 88 of the Evidence Act, the documents are ordinarily to be proved by primary evidence. That is the rule. Whenever you have to prove the content of the document, the normal thing you should do is to tender the document itself in its original form to the court. But there are situations in which the Evidence Act can allow you to tender. Um, the tender the ones that are not um, primary evidence, depending on the circumstances of the case. Mm-hmm. So I think that's good. Okay, all right. My next question now will be Are there types of documents? Yes, there are two types of documents. You have, uh, you have private documents and you have uh, 
So what we did back is this. When the other council opposes on the ground of not being for affirmation, the council who seeks to tender the documents immediately withdraws the document and apologizes. So that means where I want to tender a photocopy to you, and we get the money for foundation. And then the accountant says the document cannot be admitted because it cannot be for foundation. As a smart lawyer, what I would do is I will return my document and then I will apologize. You know, I am sorry for not being for foundation, and I will keep my document. That way, I have failed to join issue with the accountant. So there is nothing for the court to do because I am not even the court to sham to say Document is there by me that in addition to what I'm doing, I'm sorry, and I will do Then I will make attempts to tender the document again by the Member Foundation through the same witness, or I will now tender the document through another witness by the Member Foundation. But for the purpose of that final, where you do not need proper foundation, the document becomes inadmissible. It's only the parties who know that this is what happened, this is what happened. But for that final, when you do not need proper foundation for the document to be tendered, that is the end of that document. It's been wonderful having you. You can reach out to us through our social media pages on Twitter and Instagram via at DGOMG. You can support us by subscribing to the podcast on Google and Apple Podcasts and give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts. And then if you use Anchor to listen, you can click the favorite button so you get notified anytime we release a new episode. We hope you had a great time. So we'll meet again. I remain your host, Kate and Google. Stay fit and stay proper. And that's all for today's episode of the Fit and Proper Podcast, a DigiLaw production. For more about DigiLaw, you can check out our website at www.digilaw.com.ng. Follow us on social media. On LinkedIn, we are at DGL Africa. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at DigiLawNG. The Fit and Proper podcast was hosted by Keyukemi Ubi and Taiwo Gunlege. The scriptwriter is Keyukemi Ubi. Production and editing is by Akin Ifani Agumbiade. And while the voiceover is by Fashion Adibi. Until we meet again, stay fit and stay proper.